On February 15, 1998, a windsurfer headed to a deserted part of the beach near Key Biscayne, Florida. It's called Virginia Key, and it wasn't really accessible from the main road. You had to hop a fence to get there. But surfers loved it because it was known to have great waves. This surfer saw something weird near the bushes. He saw marks that looked like something had been dragged. He also saw what looked like blood on the sand. But he wasn't alarmed. He thought that it might be from an animal. So he went ahead with his windsurfing. He left the beach and came back to the same spot the next day. He surfed again. But this time, when he came out of the water at around 6 p.m., he found what appeared to be the source of the blood. He was horrified to see a body, a nude white male, lying face down in six feet of water. He fled the scene and called the police. The body was later identified as 42-year-old Dale Pike. He was the son of Tony Pike, who owned a resort in Ibiza called Pike's Hotel. Now, Tony Pike was quite a character. I heard about this case several years ago when I was living in London. Over there, Tony Pike was a legend. He owned Pike's Hotel in Ibiza, which was the site of a lot of debauchery during the 80s and 90s, starting when George Michael and Wham! filmed the music video for Club Tropicana there. That video helped put that hotel on the map. And over the years, everyone who was anyone, including Julio Iglesias, Bon Jovi, Kate Moss, and Freddie Mercury, partied at Pike's. Just a note here on pronunciation, my British friends would say Ibiza, but I'm going to go with the U.S. pronunciation here, which is Ibiza. This case would lead investigators to a man who partied with celebrities and lived a life of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and to an international ring of con men who had links to global fraud and a serial killer. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. This murder that would lead police around the world started out on that deserted beach in Florida. Police were trying to identify the body. Their John Doe had been shot twice in the back of the head. Police would later confirm that the murder weapon was a 22 caliber gun, and it had all the hallmarks of a professional hit. Someone had shot the victim once and then come over to him and shot him again. Investigators found clues in some nearby brush, they found a bloody shirt and shoes. They found other evidence, too. There was a visa entry form and a boarding pass from Iberia Airlines near the body in the sand. They had a name on them. Dale Pike. There was something else glinting in the sand, too. It was a little gold keychain, and it said Pike's. They also saw a calling card and discovered that the card had been used to call one person. Enrico Kiko Forty. Police called Iberia Airlines, they found out that someone named Dale Pike had flown into Miami the day before, on the 15th, and landed at around 4.30 p.m. The airline gave them the phone number that Dale had written down as a contact. It was the number to Pike's hotel in Ibiza. So they were quickly able to piece together that Dale Pike had connections to that hotel. They talked to the hotel manager, Antonio Fernandez. He told them that Dale had flown to Miami and that he was supposed to meet Kiko Forty and another man named Thomas Cannot. 
They also talked to Dale's distraught father, Tony Pike, who confirmed that his son had flown to Miami to talk to Kiko. So police were trying to piece together the timeline and figure out how Dale had gotten from the airport to that deserted strip of beach, which is about a 20-minute drive away. They also needed to figure out why he went there. This brings us to the name on the calling card, Kiko 40. When I ask around, not many people have heard about this case in the U.S., but in Italy, this case is super famous. Kiko 40 is considered to be like Amanda Knox to a lot of people. And a lot of people talk about this case as an example of failure of the American justice system. It's a very controversial case. I first heard about Kiko 40 because he was a minor player in the Andrew Cunanan story. Andrew went on a killing spree. He murdered four people before driving to Miami and fatally shooting Gianni Versace in 1997. Everyone seems to know about that case, but not a lot of people know what was going on behind the scenes. Because after killing Versace, Andrew Cunanan got onto a houseboat in the harbor. Police found his body there after he apparently took his own life. And that houseboat turned into a media circus. Press from around the country broadcast live, and a SWAT team surrounded the boat. But when you're dealing with red-collar cases, you know that sometimes you have to look hard at the story that everyone else is ignoring. Author Maureen Orth did this in her excellent book, Vulgar Favors. She followed the chain of ownership and tried to figure out who owned that houseboat and how and why Andrew ended up on that particular vessel. In August 1997, after the murders and after Andrew Cunanan's death, Kiko's lawyer called and told the authorities that he was the boat's new owner. Now, according to Maureen Norris' book, Kiko had some ties to some other people, seemingly shady German nationals in Miami, including a guy named Torsten Reinick, who ran a gay-friendly health spa in Miami, and according to the Sun Sentinel, had multiple fraud convictions. Then there was another name that kept popping up, Matthias Rule, the guy who Reinick apparently transferred ownership of the boat to. Now, the story was that he was supposed to lease the boat to Kiko 40 until the year 2000. But then the L.A. Times reported that Reinick sometimes used the alias Dr. Matthias Rule. The point in me bringing up this complicated chain of ownership is to illustrate the fact that a lot of these characters knew each other. A lot of them had connections to Thomas Cannot and to Kiko 40. In fact, Kiko and Thomas lived in the same apartment complex. All of these guys seemed to be involved in some shady dealings, including fraud. The circles that they moved in would become very important later in this case. Kiko had a plan. He wanted to sell access to Andrew Cunanan's houseboat. So he started talking to the press. He booked TV shows like Geraldo and made a documentary called The Smile of the Medusa. He was focused on the assassination of Gianni Versace, and he made allegations that the killing was tied to organized crime. This documentary ended up never being shown in America, and it is extremely hard to find, even on the internet today. Authorities in Miami did end up releasing the boat to Kiko. He was supposed to officially take possession on December 31, 1997. But then the boat started to sink, so effectively it became kind of uninhabitable. In January 1998, the boat was seized by the city of Miami. After the media circus of finding Andrew Cunanan, the media largely ignored the bizarre set of circumstances that followed, 
and no one seemed to really focus on who this Kiko Forty character was. Enrico Kiko Forty was born in 1959 in Trento, Italy. He was a very accomplished athlete and went on to be a champion windsurfer. He traveled the world and entered sports competitions. He relocated to California and eventually settled in Florida on the uber-wealthy Williams Island. He lived in an apartment complex just one floor away from Thomas Connaught. Since Kiko had an understanding of extreme sports, he started producing sports documentaries for channels like ESPN. He always seemed to have a lot of money. He started investing in real estate and had a portfolio that was said to be worth millions. But, as is the case with so many of these white and red-collar criminals, no one seemed to be exactly sure of the source of a lot of these funds. Kiko was known as being kind of a man about town. But according to friends and family, he was madly in love with his young second wife, Heather. The couple eventually had three children, and he seemed to be settled into family life. Tony Pike, on the other hand, was pretty much the opposite of settled. He had a wild life. It's been reported that Tony Pike is Australian. But in 2016, he did an interview with the Ibizan and told the reporter, Nick Gibbs, that he was actually born in Hertfordshire in the UK. He said that he told people he was from Australia because he wanted to forget his childhood. He said that he had three brothers and that one of them had abused him. He basically ran away from home at age 13, joined the Merchant Navy at age 15, and after some time at sea, Tony went on to become a photographer. But really what Tony was was an adventurer. He loved traveling around the world. He settled in Australia and became a naturalized citizen. Eventually, he headed to Ibiza in the Balearic Islands and bought land there. Back then, the island was a lot more rural. Tony ended up building his own little slice of paradise right there from the ground up. Pike's Hotel opened in July 1980. The TV show Power, Privilege, and Justice, which was narrated by Dominic Dunn, did an episode on this case. In that episode, Tony talked about how he had dated supermodels, including Grace Jones. Tony was married five times, and according to him, had over 3,000 lovers. And even though he admitted to being a sex addict, he had this hilarious, dry British humor. For example, once he made a comment about how he was annoyed that British tabloids wrote that at Pikes, you start your day by sprinkling cocaine on the cornflakes. He said something like, quote, why would you waste all that cocaine on cornflakes, end quote. Over the years, the island exploded in popularity. George Michael made that video there, and Ibiza kind of started following a similar trajectory to Miami. So the island went from being this rustic beach spot to an international destination for creative types, celebrities, and rock stars. Tony had two sons, Brad and Dale. With his dark hair and bushy mustache and athletic build, Dale was kind of like a mini Tony. They were very similar. Dale was living in Malaysia, and his brother Brad was in Australia. So they were pretty far away from Tony during the 90s, when Tony started to have cash flow problems. Tony had made a lot of money, but he also lived large. So he had some expensive divorces and owed people money. To solve those problems, Tony was thinking of selling the hotel. And he had already talked to someone about buying Pikes, Thomas Cannot. Thomas Cannot was another one of those guys who seemed to have no problem flashing cash around. 
Though again, no one seemed to know exactly what his actual business was. Tony met Thomas when Thomas came to stay at Pike's in 1992. Thomas invited Tony over to meet him in his room. And Tony told Power, Privilege, and Justice that there was a woman performing a sex act on Thomas when he walked in. So Tony said he kind of stood off to the side and waited for the couple to finish up what they were doing. Then he started talking to Thomas. Thomas described himself as a financial guru. They became friends. But what Tony didn't know was that Thomas had a criminal past. Thomas served four years in a German prison for what officials there say was massive financial fraud, including 14 counts of embezzlement and credit card fraud. During this time period, Tony got another shock. In 1995, he was diagnosed with AIDS. Doctors gave him less than five years to live. But Tony was determined to beat the odds. He started taking a cocktail of drugs and feeling better. Still, according to his sons, Brad and Dale, he suffered side effects from the illness, one of which was dementia. They say he would have good periods and bad periods. In 1997, Thomas called Tony up and told him that he was out of jail. He said he was living in Florida. Now, Tony still considered him a friend. So when Thomas invited Tony to come to Miami and party on his dime, Tony was eager to go. Tony flew to Williams Island, and he was blown away by the excess and wealth there. He stayed with Thomas. They ate at the best restaurants. And according to Power, Privilege, and Justice, Thomas picked up the tab for everything. But what Tony didn't realize was that Thomas was setting him up for a big con. Tony met someone else in Miami, Thomas's upstairs neighbor, Kiko Forty. Like Thomas, Kiko also knew how to wine and dine and flash cash and seemed to know everyone in town. Then, according to Power, Privilege, and Justice, the two men, Kiko and Thomas, kind of started trying to one-up each other. It seemed like they were trying to buy Tony's friendship. In hindsight, Tony told the TV program he believed this had been an elaborate setup so that they could get his hotel. Kiko gave Tony a 1974 Rolls-Royce. Then Thomas gave him an even newer Mercedes. Then, incredibly, Kiko gave Tony a Bentley. Tony admits that during this time, he was living the high life and loving the attention. But then, Kiko and Thomas seemed to have a falling out. Kiko told Tony that Thomas was a scammer. Meanwhile, Tony's very loyal manager, Antonio, noticed that there was a lot of money missing from Tony's bank accounts. It turned out that when Tony had lost his credit cards in Miami and Antonio sent the new ones, Thomas had stolen Tony's info from those cards and turned around and maxed them out. According to Tony, Thomas stole around $100,000 from him. While Tony was out partying and eating and clubbing, he didn't realize that he was actually spending his own money to do that and even money he didn't have. So as a result of this, Tony stopped dealing with Thomas and became more focused on Kiko Forty. They talked about doing a deal where Kiko would buy Pike's Hotel. Tony told Kiko that he would not take less than $5 million for Pike's. According to Tony, Kiko agreed to pay him that amount. But the deal they made was that Kiko would own the hotel, but that Tony would be allowed to continue to live there and to manage the day-to-day operations. Tony's son, Brad, later told investigators that he and his brother, Dale, were very suspicious of this deal. They had questions about the contract and about Kiko Forty in general. Tony told Power, Privilege, and Justice that when he was staying near Kiko in Miami, he got super sick. 
He said one night after he'd taken sleeping pills, Kiko came in and got him to sign a bunch of documents. Dale told his dad that he needed to know what was going on. So the plan was for Tony and Dale to fly together to Miami and meet with Kiko. But Dale's brother later told CBS News that at the last minute, Tony was unable to go on the trip. So Dale decided to go alone. Hours after arriving in Miami, he was dead. So Dale and Tony planned to fly to Miami to talk to Kiko. Tony had to stay behind, so Dale took a flight from Malaysia to Spain, and then Miami. On February 14th, Dale called Tony from the airport to let him know he was in transit and said he was about to catch his flight to Miami. Tony said that was the last time that he ever talked to his son. And every time you see Tony in interviews, even though he's this larger-than-life guy, he can't get through talking about his late son without crying. After the body was found and police got the name Kiko Forty from Tony, they called Kiko. He immediately told them that he had never seen Dale Pike on that day. But detectives did not believe his story. They believed that he was hiding something. So they tracked down the airport paging records. That's when they found out that right after Dale's plane landed in Miami, Kiko and Dale had paged each other at the airport multiple times. Kiko claimed that he had been at the airport and waited for Dale for almost two hours. But then he said Dale never showed up, so he left. Police believed that Kiko was lying. And later, Kiko admitted that he had lied. He said he had seen Dale Pike, but he insisted that when he left Dale, Dale was alive and well. Kiko said that he only lied because Thomas threatened him. He said that Thomas had told him that he had to pick Dale up and that to make sure that Kiko complied, Kiko claimed that Thomas had made threats directed at his family. So Kiko said that on the 15th, he was afraid for his life. So he headed to Miami-Dade International Airport to pick Dale up. Kiko said that he had another complication that day. He was supposed to pick his father-in-law up later that night. But his father-in-law's flight didn't arrive until 8 p.m., so he had some time that afternoon. Dale's flight was due to arrive at 3 p.m., but the flight was delayed. Eventually, it landed at around 4.30. So after paging each other for almost two hours, Dale and Kiko finally found each other and left the airport at around 6.30 p.m. Kiko told CBS News that the plan had been for Dale to stay with him, but his father-in-law was coming into town, so he had to break the news to Dale that this wasn't going to work. Kiko said that at that point, he offered to get Dale a hotel. But he said Dale told him that he wanted to party and asked Kiko to drive him to a gas station so he could get some cigarettes. Kiko said that he did, and he said that when they pulled up at that gas station, Dale used a payphone to call Thomas. Then he said that he drove Dale to a restaurant called the Rusty Pelican, which, by the way, is on Virginia Key, very near where Dale's body was later found. Kiko said that he pulled into the parking lot next to a white Lexus, and Dale told him that Thomas was sending a guy, someone Kiko had never met, to pick Dale up there. Kiko said that in the parking lot, Dale got his bag out of Kiko's car, and Kiko saw him get into that white Lexus with the driver. Kiko said that Dale told him he was headed out to party, and that he would see him the next week, after Tony arrived in Miami. 
At 7.16, Kiko called his wife, Heather, on his cell phone. He said he was en route to the airport. And he didn't say anything about picking Dale up. This would become a crucial point in the case, because investigators saw the fact that Kiko lied to his wife as evidence that he could be lying about everything. But Kiko insisted that he didn't tell Heather about Dale because he was worried that she would be upset about the fact that he was driving this guy around when he was supposed to be at the airport to pick up Heather's father. Police were later able to figure out that that call came from an area about two miles from the Rusty Pelican. Kiko picked his father-in-law up from the airport. So many people pointed out that if he did commit this murder on his own, the window of time for him to do it seemed to be very small. A lot of people wondered if there could have been a second person who helped with the assassination or with getting rid of the body. Police checked into Thomas's background and found all the information about him committing financial fraud. They also searched his apartment. They found weapons, but none of them matched the weapon that had been used in Dale's murder. They needed to talk to Thomas, and they finally found him. And in a crazy twist, when they tracked down Thomas Cannot, the guy who had blown millions and had been living so large in Miami, they found him in South Beach. He was living in his car and eating pretzels from a gas station. Thomas completely denied any involvement in Dale's killing. And he did have an alibi. He said that on the night Dale died, he had a dinner party. And seven people confirmed that Thomas had been in his apartment that night. This seems like a solid alibi on the surface. Of course, as an investigator, I also have to consider the possibility that this could also seem like one of those two perfect alibis. Also, Thomas knew some dodgy characters. So a lot of people wondered if he could have hired someone else to carry out the hit. But Thomas told police that Kiko was the one with the reason to kill Tony. He claimed that Kiko was swindling money out of Tony's hotel. Thomas said that Kiko had been trying to pressure him into leaving town. He said that Kiko had given him money to leave, and police found evidence of an ATM transaction, which helped verify Thomas's story. So now both of these guys were accusing each other, and they're both accomplished liars. Police were trying to figure out who to believe. Police did know that Thomas had stolen almost $100,000 from Tony Pike. According to 48 Hours, Tony hoped to sell Pike's hotel for millions of dollars. But inside Kiko's apartment, police found documents that they say Kiko forged, fake documents that stated that Tony Pike was giving his hotel to Kiko. It turned out that Kiko had only given Tony around $25,000 as a payment on the hotel. So now police were wondering if Kiko had been planning to kill Tony and Dale to get the hotel. But Kiko completely denied trying to steal Tony's hotel. In fact, he said that over the years, Tony was scamming him. He said that Tony was hiding a secret. Unbeknownst to Kiko, Tony only controlled around 5% of Pike's hotel at the time he was trying to sell it. Kiko said that Tony was not vulnerable In fact, he claimed that Tony was cunning and clever and fake dementia. I've thought about this a lot, and it would be hugely ironic if Kiko was trying to scam Tony and went to such great lengths, only to find out that there was no money and no hotel. When you're potentially dealing with multiple scammers, it's always hard to figure out what's going on. Maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. 
So after hearing Thomas's story, police believe that Kiko could have the stronger motive. But they still had no physical evidence, no blood, no fingerprints, no connection between Kiko and Dale's body. So they searched Kiko's Range Rover again, and this time they found a tiny amount of sand, about a teaspoonful. And this sand evidence would become very controversial. When the data on the sand sample came back, they found that the sand from the car was a very close match to the sand of Virginia Key that was found just a few feet from Dale's body. Police couldn't tie Thomas to Dale's murder. They did convict him on four counts of fraud connected to the $90,000 he took from Tony. At the same time, detectives were doing a deep dive into Thomas's life. They found out that Thomas also claimed to be a professional tennis player and had a habit of wearing tennis clothes everywhere. But this wasn't true. Thomas apparently got a green card by marrying his downstairs neighbor. Dateline tracked her down, and the neighbor said that when Thomas asked her to marry him so that he could stay in the country, she was happy to help him out. But that very quickly, she started to notice that Thomas was not who he appeared to be. She said that he had a bad temper. But sometimes in murder cases, it comes down to who police are able to prosecute and to who can cut a better deal. And Thomas made a deal with prosecutors. He agreed to testify against Kiko if they would not charge him with murder. In 1999, Kiko Forty was charged with the murder of Dale Pike. When Kiko went to trial in 2000, the prosecution talked about the fraud and also the physical evidence. There was the evidence found on the beach, the bloody clothes, the phone card, and the information from the airline. Some people believed the fact that there was so much evidence pointed to the theory that Kiko probably wasn't the gunman. They asked, would a professional hitman who bothered to go to such a remote location and strip the clothes off his victim really leave behind such a massive paper trail with his name all over it? There was the cell phone data, which showed that Kiko had been in an area close to the body. 48 Hours did a great episode recently called The Case Against Enrico Forti. They interviewed him, and he still maintains his innocence. He explained the lies he told. He said, again, that he lied to the police because he was afraid of Thomas, and lied to his wife because he didn't want her to be annoyed about the fact that he was out driving someone else around when he was supposed to be waiting for her dad. Kiko's attorney once again said that Thomas had the motive, not Kiko. According to the attorney, Kiko was successful. He had money. He wasn't broke and desperate like Thomas. There was also the fact that Antonio Fernandez, the manager at Pike's, who allegedly said that Dale got into an argument about money with Thomas right before he left for Miami, was not mentioned at Kiko's trial. Kiko said that Thomas was terrified that if Tony prosecuted him for fraud, he could go back to jail. But then there was the physical evidence, the evidence that changed everything, that sand sample. 48 Hours did a ton of research into the backstory of the sand. They said there had actually been three searches, and it was only on the third search that police removed the trailer hitch from the Range Rover, and that's where they found the sand. According to 48 Hours, it came down to, quote, blow-ups of microscopic images of sand particles, with their expert saying the grains definitely came from Virginia Key, end quote. 
A juror named Veronica Lee talked to Aaron Moriarty. She said that she believed the jury had not reached the correct verdict. She pointed out that Kiko was a windsurfer, so it wouldn't seem strange for him to have sand in the back of his car. There was something else brought up in court, the contents of Dale Pike's stomach. Dale had undigested food in his body at the time of death, and the prosecution's pathologist used that to estimate the time of death as being between 6 p.m. and 7.16 p.m. But 48 Hours pointed out that figuring out the time of death is very difficult. And I agree, this is not information that I normally see included in an autopsy. There are so many factors that go into how fast food is digested. And this just seems like a very narrow window of time. Erin Moriarty talked to a pathologist, Dr. Greg Davis, who told her that he believed that if anything, Dale could have died later. He said he based that conclusion on the fact that Dale did not have any bug bites. Then there is the mystery of who Dale could have called. Kiko insists that Dale used a payphone at the gas station before driving to the Rusty Pelican. Detectives say that at the time they pulled the phone records and found no evidence of a phone call. But Kiko's lawyer told 48 Hours that the police had actually subpoenaed the wrong phone records. The lawyer said police subpoenaed records from 1999 instead of 1998. And by the time they figured out their mistake, the real records from the correct time period were gone. So there's no way to determine now if Dale Pike called anyone and, if he did, who they were. The jury deliberated for just a short time. They found Kiko Forty guilty of murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. To this day, he maintains that he had nothing to do with Dale Pike's death. His friends and family and supporters have created a website describing his case. They have stuck by him over the years and appealed to the Italian government for help. Kiko's uncle, Johnny Forty, has spoken out publicly about the case, and a man came forward claiming to be a witness. 48 Hours tracked down this alleged witness, a man named Fabrizio Pandolfi, of course, Fabrizio has issues of his own. He also has a record of fraud convictions. Fabrizio claims that he met Thomas Connaught in 2011 at a party in Monte Carlo on a yacht called the Goldfinger. He said that Thomas made remarks about having done things. Fabrizio said that Thomas, quote, also used to mime the use of a revolver, of a gun, like this. He used to say, I did things that I didn't pay for, end quote. This alleged witness said that he came forward because he wanted to help a man who could potentially be innocent. But I'm not sure how much good Fabrizio's information would be. It did not mention anyone by name, did not explicitly say that Thomas had killed anyone, and Fabrizio has his own criminal history. Still, there are many questions about exactly what happened on February 15, 1998, after Dale Pike landed in Miami. It seems that he had planned to confront Thomas, Kiko, or both, about defrauding his dad. And tragically, he did this alone. Thomas Connaught has always insisted he had nothing to do with Dale's murder, and after he served three years in Florida prisons, for defrauding Tony, he was deported to Germany. Kiko's case continues to be a cause celeb in his home country of Italy. But according to the state of Florida, he's guilty. So far, all of Kiko's appeals have been rejected. 
He's now in his 60s. And in 2020, according to the Miami Herald, Governor Ron DeSantis, at the request of the U.S. Department of Justice and the Italian government, conditionally approved his transfer to Italy. The Italian foreign minister announced that as a result of this agreement, Kiko would be allowed to serve the rest of his sentence in Italy. The prosecution has not backed down over the years. If anything, they seem to be doubling down on his guilt. The Miami-Dade prosecutors have made it very clear that they oppose any move. They released a statement. It read in part, quote, Due to the strength of the evidence against Forty, 12 jurors rejected his many self-serving fabrications, intended to cast suspicion upon anyone but himself for Dale Pike's murder. Forty's many criminal court appeals appear to have failed for similar reasons. End quote. Tony Pike proved his doctors wrong. He got better, and he survived long after doctors said that he should have died. He finally sold the hotel to a company called Ibiza Rocks in 2008. Tony continued to run the hotel and to party and socialize with guests. In 2019, Vice ran a profile of him called the 83-year-old Ibiza party animal. Sadly, Tony passed away in 2019. According to his obituary in the independent newspaper, he continued to live at Pike's until he died. Tony Pike buried Dale's ashes under an olive tree at the hotel. Dale's family and friends have had to make peace with the fact that they may never know the whole truth about what happened and that some secrets may stay buried forever at the beach. Brad Pike told 48 Hours, quote, I don't think anyone will really know what the absolute truth is. There's only two people that know, and one of them is dead, and the other one pulled the trigger. It's those unsolved mysteries that we have to learn to live with, end quote. The prosecutors who worked to convict Kiko have stated that they absolutely believe he is guilty of Dale's murder, but they believe that others, maybe Thomas Connaught or someone he solicited, or maybe someone else entirely, could have been involved too. It's possible that Kiko and Thomas were both in on the killing, and that Kiko kept his lies close to the truth when he talked to police. He admitted the part about delivering Dale to the mystery man in the white Lexus, but some people suspect that he may be holding back part of the story. Maybe, some people have suggested, he knew that he was delivering Dale to his death. So it's very possible that one or more of Dale Pike's killers are still out there. Red Collar is an Audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Flowers and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? <laughs>